Welcome to the Polari Podcast with me, Sophia Blackwell. And me, Paul Burston. And Paul, where are you joining me from today? Are you in London or Hastings? I'm in sunny London. Sunny South London. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'm in sunny North London. At least, at least it is sunny and uh, it is nice and bright, if a bit brisk today. So you've been on tour quite a lot recently, haven't you? When was the last gig outside of London that you did? The last gig was Edinburgh, which was fabulous. Really fabulous. Um, and before that yeah. was Brighton. Yeah, I look forward to putting together the Edinburgh show, which I think is going to be uh, the, the last one in, in this series, along with kind of the lead up to the prize announcement on the 30th, which is very exciting. So when you did the event in Brighton, had you worked at that venue before? I haven't come across the Ironworks before. No, the Ironworks is a new venue. Keris Evans, who is a poet and writer that, I, that I've known for some years now, was based in Brighton for many years and is currently based in Bedford, but is moving back to Brighton. Uh, she knows Paul, who is the guy that set up this venue. And when I was planning this tour, she floated the idea past me. It's a fantastic venue. I mean, I didn't know quite what to expect, you know, not knowing the venue. I, I, we used to always perform at the um, Marlborough in the past, and they're, they're not, they've not been operating. And I love, I love the Marlborough. It's a great venue, but it was quite good to, to, try, you know, to try a new venue as well. The Ironworks is, is very close to the station. It's literally, I mean, I, I got lost. I came out of the front of Brighton Station with my, with my um, Google Maps on and went all around the houses. And basically, you, when, you, when you get off the train, you come out the sides, the side exit instead of the front exit, and it's literally opposite you. Um, it's really, really close to the station. It's a fantastic venue. It's a new venue, um, what a new conversion. When you walk in, there's a really great area where they do filming, like a little studio area. And then there's the studio theatre, which is a really lovely space. And it was one of those gigs where you turn up on the day and you know already that it's going to be a good gig. There's just such a great vibe in the venue. And because Paul's a a performer, he's a musician. You know, when venues are run by people that actually use the stage themselves as performers, there's something about the way the venue is being run that it's very geared towards the performer's needs. It's somebody who really understands what it's all about, even though it's not finished. So there was, you know, he kept, kept apologising for the fact that there was areas backstage that weren't finished yet because it's still being uh, converted. It's full, It's a fully functioning theatre, but the backstage area, there's, you know, some rooms that aren't finished yet and things like that. So it's just a really, really great space, really lovely space. And we sold out, so it was packed, which was really amazing. And there was a very, very full bill. <laughs> we had six people on the bill which is more than I'd normally have and then the the event was such a great energy that even though I hadn't intended to I decided to read something as well so I squeezed myself onto the bill so there were seven of us reading seven which is the biggest bill we've ever had it was oh, such cool. a great night well sometimes you just got to be spontaneous and do it haven't you and the, the the energy is right so what did you read Oh, well, I mean, I was teased after. We had the first couple of um, readings and then I came on back on and I you know, thanked the, the last person that was on. And then I said to the audience, you know, I wasn't planning to read tonight, but the energy is so good. I'd like to read something for you. And of course, it was pointed out later on that, you know, how convenient that I actually had it with me. <laughs> Someone pointed out, well, you know, you, you told the audience that you weren't planning to read, but how, 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 how convenient that you had it on you. I mean, the, rea- the reality is I had it still in. I have a little wallet that I carry around like a... Um, an A4 wallet, and it was still in there from Manchester from the previous month. And it's basically a story about when I was 21 
and had this long distance relationship with this Greek guy. And it's a, it's a funny story and it's a sort of sweet story. So, it, and it always goes down well with an audience. There's lots of laughs in it. So I wanted to read and the energy was just so great that night in Brighton. It was an amazing, amazing event. It was a really great space. Um, it was nice to go somewhere new. Um, the, the the staff, they couldn't do enough for you. They were so, everyone was so on the ball and they were doing lots of Brighton Pride events. So there was a whole season going on um, of cabaret and different live events all that week and the week before as part of Brighton Pride. And there's, there's a sort of ready-made catchment. It's a new venue, so people were excited to come to a new venue. The, the audience were fantastic. They were such a lovely, warm, enthusiastic audience. You just knew the minute you walked on stage that they were on side. You could just feel the energy. It was a fantastic, fantastic mix. So thinking about the audience, when we spoke when we spoke about the Manchester show, you mentioned that you had quite a, a young crowd for that, or rather that it was spread out quite well across the very young to sort of middle-aged and older demographic, and there were quite a few younger people there, um, sort of born in the 90s and later. What was the demographic like on this one? A bit more like the usual, or were you also seeing yes. a couple of changes? Yeah, the, 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 this, this this was a this was more of our our usual sort of demographics. I, I'd say kind of you know thirty plus most people. There were a couple of younger people, but not many. I think I think it always ref- I think it's always um, a reflection of who's on the bill as well. You know, well, yeah, so yeah, so I mean, the, 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 I, there was nobody on this bill who was under thirty. So that in, I think people tend to gravitate towards um, events based on the kind of demographic that's on stage. I think that's inevitable. Um, and you can't always, you know, I always I always strive to have as diverse a range of people as possible um, within the, the constraints that are inevitably there, based on where you are, who you know, who's available, uh, what kind of work they're producing. Because I always, my main criteria for, for an event is always that there should be a wide range of voices meaning literary voices so um it's not just about um diversity in 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 all the other senses it's also about the diversity of the work and i'm also this this toy is very strongly linked to the polari prize um because it's celebrating the 10th anniversary of the prize although we're now in the 11th year because everything was delayed because of covid um so I've obviously um, focused on people as much as possible who are linked to the prize. So we had two people on the bill who'd been on long and short lists in the in past years. Actually, I'm, and we also had a previous prize winner, John McCulloch. You know, when, when, once you've kind of fulfilled that criteria, then you've got a few other places left on the bill. Um, and of course, then you have the host pushing himself onto the bill as well. So. <laughs> You should enjoy your moment in the limelight, though. You're often giving it up for us. And when it comes to, you know, events where you have a bit more flexibility, um, you know, I've done that a couple of times as well, though. It's uh, it's always tempting to let the others go first, especially when uh, you've asked them to come along. So what was the running order? Do you remember? Gosh, that's a good question. Uh-huh. Keris Evans was first, then David Fennell, then Ali Rogers and me, and then the interval and then John McCulloch, and then Robert Hamburger. So out of the performers that appeared at this Brighton event, uh, I'm only that familiar 
with two of them, I think, um, though I had heard of Robert Hamburger because he's published by the company that I work for, and I have been looking forward to reading his new book, which uh, I have not yet got around to. You started off on that event with Keris Evans, who has appeared on another of our podcasts this season, um, Polaro at the RBT with Adele Anderson, when they were talking about all things trans and their journeys. The excerpt that I have, which we're going to broadcast as part of this show, is Karis talking about an imaginary imaginary lover or an idealised lover. Uh, what was the rest of the set like and what do you think about the idealised lover idea? Do we ever kind of waste our time thinking about uh, the perfect man or the perfect woman? The set was very varied. I mean, she Karis opened with a poem that she first performed for me the first time I ever met her at a workshop in Cardiff, which is about being invited to a nudist beach. And it's a sort of her, her thought as a trans woman about what that meant to reveal oneself bodily in, in that way in public space. I mean, there was also there was also a poem about perfectionism called Dear Perfectionism, which is all about sort of how perfectionism and anxiety can basically stop you from being creative. So she's basically addressing head on that that nagging, doubting voice that you have on your shoulder when you're a creative person. Dear perfectionism, thank you for your constant interruption. Without you, how could I ever know I was doing a bad job? Or lazy? Or worthless? Dear perfectionism, you are the looming shadow I could almost call friend. I can always count on you to drain the joy like blood from an artery. And just like Dracula, I've somehow fallen into the spell that you are somehow good for me. Dear perfectionism, I've never known a family heirloom quite like you, passed from wrinkled hand to a baby's grip. I could see you when I was criticised for only getting 95% on my inability to capture football. I've heard you uttered from the bitter, twisted lips of those who'd say how much better I'd feel with a makeover. But without you, how can I get others to like me? Dear perfectionism, when the whole world burns from nuclear radiation and all of humanity is nothing but ash, I can still find you scuttering in the mud amongst all the other cockroaches. And it's funny how all the paths of destruction always lead back to you. Dear perfectionism, you're the one that probably started the nuclear war in the first place. Mm -hmm. Dear perfectionism, I know I'm not very good at the whole trans activism thing, but I sleep with too many stuffed animals to be angry all the time. My attention span is too short for a sit-in, and my bladder wouldn't hold out long enough to be chained to a building. But the biggest fight I face each day is with you, and I'll probably never win. But if I could figure you out, then maybe I'll figure everything else out too. Dear perfectionism, there isn't a day that goes by where anxiety isn't a heavy weight on my lungs. Why well, I wonder whether today will be the day where demons feast on my mind, and yes, you are one of them. But to hold my spine straight in a world that tries to force it down is not bravery. I'm just a workaholic. Dear perfectionism, there is more to life than being perfect. Sometimes it is only through the worst prophecies coming true that I can realise that maybe I like imperfection. 
show me a scar and I will show you a story more beautiful than words can ever tell. And speaking of words, I'll use a double negative in a sentence if I want to. Ain't no one gonna tell me any different. Mm-hmm. Dear perfectionism, the heart is a muscle. And every time I turn my back on seeking you out, it's like I'm running a marathon attached to a ventilator. But still, I do it because I want to live and to laugh and to feel beautiful. Dear perfectionism, I am beautiful. I've been beautiful since the day I was born, but it's not the beauty that you would define. It's the love that you get when you look at a flower. It may never cover Vogue, but it will pollinate the earth faster than words ever could tell. With words and with letters. Dear perfectionism, thank you for listening. You are proof that there is still good within this world. Because if I'd never found you, I never would have gone looking for me. Thank you. For those who uh, also experienced that, um, Keris also reads part of that poem in the episode at the RVT with Adele, which is also available on your podcast platforms. And yeah, this is something that I can't get enough of thinking about at the moment. Queer perfectionism. It's something that I think we all suffer from and this idea that, you know, if we're just good enough, then people will forgive us and everything will be all right. And it's really difficult and it does stymie your art. Well, I mean, I think I think imposter syndrome is far more widespread than people think um, among creatives. I mean, I know very few writers who don't suffer from it at some point or experience it at some point. But I think um, if you've grown up uh, gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual, the, 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 the chances of you having it are much higher because I think you learn from a very young age to, to, being an, to be an imposter because you, you basically spend a part of your younger life pretending to be something that you're not in order to pass and, and to be safe because of fear of rejection or even fear of yourself. You know, internalised homophobia is a very real problem. So I think imposter syndrome and that mesh together becomes a much bigger issue for us, potentially. Not for everyone, obviously, but I think it potentially it is a bigger issue because it's sort of ingrained in our DNA from a very young age, that that sense and I think it's a very, very clever poem to actually sort of be addressing it in a kind of witty way, actually speaking to it as if it's actually a person. Um, I think that the best writers do tend to have it because I think it's what makes you better. I think it's, I think it's, if, if you if you don't have that doubting voice, then you, you don't keep going really because, you you know, the last thing you wrote will be the best thing you've ever written. <laughs> I mean, if you, do, if, you, if you don't have that, if you don't have that question mark when you finish something that maybe you can do better next time, why would you continue? So it, it, can, it can be constructive. It can be harnessed and channeled in a constructive way, but it can also be very destructive. And there are times when you just need to switch it off. I think one of the best um, pieces of advice I was ever given as a writer is basically just to not look back. So that when you're when you're working on a first draft of something, don't keep going back over the last chapter. I mean, I write long long form fiction, but I think it applies to any any form of writing really. Um, just get that version, that draft down, and then go back and start fixing things. Because if you if if you if you stop and look back when you when you're sort of two pages or two paragraphs in. The tendency is that the da- the imposter syndrome and the doubting voice actually becomes very crippling, and you actually can't move forward. You become fixated on very small details, and you you don't see the bigger picture. 
And I think if you're writing a story um, or, lo- or a novel or a short story or you have to get so many words down, you know. If you're writing a novel, there's a lot of there's a lot of words in a novel. You know, we're talking, you know, seventy thousand plus usually. And if you if 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 you end up sort of fixating on a paragraph, which I've done in the past, um, you don't move forward very quickly. So it's important for that first draft to try and ignore the doubting voice, just try and silence it some silence it somehow and just get on with the draft. Everyone's first draft is rubbish. I mean, anyone who tells you that their first draft is wonderful is lying. You know, your first draft is basically loads and loads and loads of mistakes. But within it, there's the skeleton of what the story is going to be. And there may even be pe- pages or chunks that are actually great, and you'll end up, they'll end up being in, in the finished draft. But most of it will be reworked. For me, he paints the moon and skies. Each night he plays me the owl's lullaby. His fingers dance on the inside of my thighs. He's truly the perfect man. Because when my heart races, it's from love and not fear. He holds me by the hand and not the wrist. The words, please stop, don't mean do that again and again. No, he has no cracks because he is the sun, casting every man and everyone else into shade. But just like the sun, he goes away. Clouds form, the wind settles. I went out to reach his hand, and all that's that's left is an empty draft. To see him, I close my eyes, and as I shut myself off from the world, I collide with the very things I'm trying to avoid. And my heart races from fear and not love. An imaginary boyfriend will never disappoint you, but he will never surprise you. So he'll always disappoint you again and again, because how can a dream boy have his dream girl when he's nothing but a dream? I still remember him to this day. But I do not look for him in photographs or poetry. Instead, I find him. When my heart beats from the fear of what I love or the love of what I fear, when I laugh so hard my cells feel like supernovas or as I race the lanes of my life and as the wind rushes through my hair, I could almost hear it say, that is my girl. When I was listening to Karis's poem about the lover, I thought, you know, oh, this is a real person. And, you know, there were some tip-offs that it may not be, but then it becomes clear that, you know, fantasy people can't surprise us uh, and confuse us in the way that real people do and are therefore less exciting. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? This idea of the, uh, the idea of the perfect lover who may or may not show up. I think it is, and I think gay men in particular, in my experience, often have this. It's the, it's, it's the Quentin Crisp great dark man syndrome. But What's that? The idea that, that, that somewhere there's a man who's going to rescue you from, from yourself. I've certainly had that in the past in my life when I was younger. When I was writing the, my memoir, I was quite sort of surprised when I was sort of revisiting periods of my life in my early 20s that... It was a recurring theme. I was constantly looking for 
for, I was looking for someone else to complete me and, and, to, and to make me happy. And the, the reality is that that never works. You know, you have to find your own completion in yourself and your own happiness in yourself. And that isn't to say that you can't um, love and be loved. That's a really important part of life, I, I, I believe. But I don't think you can, your happiness can't be dependent on somebody else. I think that's a, that's a real problem. And I think sometimes gay men have this tendency where they think that if they meet the right guy, the hottest guy, then that's going to make everything okay. And I, I've, I've come across it so many times in my life, with my, in, in myself and with friends. It, does, it doesn't work out like that, you know? It doesn't work out like that. It, you, it, you end up... There's, all, there's always going to be... I mean, I mean, you mean gay, gay men have this very, very, um, not all gay men, but many gay men have this very, very fixed idea of, you know, who the hot guy is and what they should be like and um, notions around how they perform masculinity and all this kind of stuff. And which is where Quentin Crisp's Great Dark Man is from, because, you know, the, 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 the contradiction that he talks about, talked about a lot in his writing was the idea that the Great Dark Man didn't exist because he would have to be heterosexual. So you have that whole sort of fetishizing of the, of the straight man, which still happens, is that, that still exists. It may well be possible that you can, you can have a meaningful, fulfilling sexual relationship with a straight man, but it's never ever going to be exclusive, is it? Because you're never going to be able to fulfill everything that that person wants. Um, and I think that we, we, we often go looking for that person to complete us. And I don't think that, that that's ever going to work out. And I think what what Keris talk, talks about in that poem very well is 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 how absurd it is to, to 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 expect that because people don't live up to the fantasy. It's not possible. What you fa- how you fantasize, and maybe that maybe that's part of the attraction of it that it's unattainable. You know, I think fantasy is fine. I think there's absolutely. I think it's absolutely great actually to have fantasies. I also think that you know. You have to be aware of where the fantasy ends and reality and reality begins. And you know, real life people are not going to be everything. They're not going to they're not going to tick every single box. Um, you know, the, the 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 perfect man doesn't exist. Basically, I mean that's that's simply that's simply a fact. So you people are flawed, and learning part of part of mat- maturity and 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 learning to be happy in yourself is is accepting that everyone is flawed, yourself included, and to learn how to work around those flaws or how to accept them. Um, this tendency, this strife for perfection in your work and in your life is a hiding to nothing, really, because you're never going to find it. <laughs> I don't think, anyway. Maybe, maybe I'll be proved wrong, but so far in my life, I found it to be the case that you're not going to find that. I think that all sounds very sane and I think you're right that fantasy is an important part of life and one that we can keep going even when we're in committed relationships. With women, um, sometimes we tend to be more forgiving when we're lesbians of each other's physical flaws, which doesn't mean that we don't have eating disorders, body dysmorphia and things like that. We do. You know, historically, it's slightly less about looks and a little bit more about emotions. The downside is that lesbians can be quite codependent. And especially when you're dealing with people who have had difficult childhoods or whatever, you sometimes find yourself being everything to them. And that sometimes isn't the fault of that person, but it's also the fault of our atomized society where some people don't have good relationships with their parents or, you know, you don't live in the town that you grew up in, so you don't necessarily have the support. Whereas you find yourself, you know, also being your lover's parent and that can kind of like really put a kibosh on your sex life. 
So, going on to the next performer, you're going to have to tell me a little bit about David Fennell. Um, I haven't seen him in action before. David Fennell is he's, um, a crime writer who I met, gosh, I guess three or four years ago at an event at Goldsboro Books, which is a bookshop in Charing Cross, which is owned by my agent, David Headley. And, and David Fennell is his partner, now husband. And... David's from Belfast um, and he used to write kind of spy espionage sort of thrillers. Now he's written a more, well, in, in the genre that I tend to read. So it, it's, it's uh, as, as himself, as David Fennell, and it's called The Art of Death. And it's a book about a serial killer who is staging these murders as if they are art around London. And it's a fantastic, really gripping story. Really, really great idea and really good story. Really well put together. And he's a very, very lovely guy. He, he's not someone who's read in public very often. And he was quite nervous before before the event. We were sitting at the side of the stage at the beginning and he was he was telling me that he, had, he was feeling quite nervous. I said, you'll be fine. It's a really great audience. And he read really, really well. It went down really well. He was great. So he was very happy afterwards. He approaches the Lumberyard Cafe on the corner of Upper St. Martin's Lane and Tower Street and checks his watch. It's 8 or 9 a.m., less than one hour until the curtains drop. A tingling cessation surges through him, prickling his flesh, rousing his senses. He takes a breath and composes himself. The Lumberyard Cafe is one of a breed of urban cool coffee shops dotted throughout some central London. The exterior is painted an a la mode Victorian dark grey in a shabby chic style with splashes of contrived, meaningless graffiti art that poo at his eyes for all the wrong reasons. The entrance door is a contrasting pillar box red, not a colour he would have chosen, but each to their own. <laughs> Peering through the cafe window, he sees Elaine Kelly's blonde head nod and shake as she chats to her Betty Jackie, the friend who is forever posting cat pictures mood memes and filtered selfies with ridiculous pouting lips. Jackie's mediocre existence is gilded through the lens of social media. She has a small candle burning in a cavern, not like Elaine. Elaine is special. Elaine is the flame that lights the cavern. But Jackie has her uses. Jackie's social media is his window into Elaine's whereabouts. Her postings have brought him here today. If he is lucky, he can sit close to her, listening, watching, smelling. A smile crosses his face as he appraises his muse. She'll be an exquisite addition to his next exhibition. Following David, you had a writer who had previously been shortlisted for the Polari Prize, uh, Ali Rogers. Uh, what book was Ali reading from? Ali was shortlisted for her first book, which was called Little Gold. Um, but she was reading from her second book, which is called Tale of a Tooth. It's in the voice of a, of a child. It's a very difficult thing to pull off that. I mean, I mean, I've written, well, I've written one novel where there is the voice of a child just for a part of the book is in the Black Path. The, the narrator's called Helen, the main character. And at one point in the book, you're inside her head when she is a small child. She's 10. And... I found it extremely difficult to do that. And that was only for a short short part. It was only for one, like a, a prologue. Um, to write an entire book in that voice is a really, really 
challenging thing for a writer, I think, because the tendency mm. is to give that character too great a vocabulary or to have them think like an adult when they're actually still a child. And she pulls it off brilliantly. It's just the right balance. It's very, very funny. And you see the world through this character's eyes. And the, there's a lot of humour in it where the, the, the obviously the reader is hearing and, and seeing things differently to the, to the character. But it never becomes icky or pastiche. It's, 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 it's very, very credible throughout. She's a very, very gifted writer, Ali. Very gifted. And she read brilliantly. She had the audience completely in the palm of her hand. She was really, really excellent. Very, 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 very funny. Lots of laughs. It was actually while she was reading that I thought, I really need to read tonight. <laughs> I want a bit of that. I want a bit of that, yeah. Basically, they started their day, they went to the pier, all was good. Karen treated everyone to chips and fizzy drinks, and little Danny, unfortunately, dropped his can of Coke on Karen's brand new suede trainers. So things are a little bit sticky. Karen has declared that she needs a drink, and for this scene, we're going to meet them walking through the North Lane, looking for a pub that might be appropriate to go into. One other thing I should mention about Danny is that very, very close to Nemo, and he sees her emotional states as colours, and you might pick that up as I read. Mimo doesn't like pubs. Sometimes, dark brown days, we come past the pub on the corner and Mimo is, look, look at them Danny all pissing their lives away. Mendu shouts by the pub after bedtime. Sometimes it's fighting, sometimes a joke. Mimo says beer turns jokes to fighting. Beer is a potion of a witch, which I won't ever drink. <laughs> we walk long on pavements of all people. Meanwhile, makes me hold hands, sticky hot hands. How about this one, Matt? It's the weather spoons, it'll be fine for kids. It's so busy though, Kay. Can't we find something a bit smaller? I did pulling, pulling by the step. <laughs> okay, whatever. Karen was going fast, wiggling in and out of all the people. Lots of people now, and all in the roads, no cars. Kay, Karen, how about in here? Looks nice. Is it a pub? Yeah, yeah, look. Okay, whatever, I just need a bloody drink. The pub wasn't like the corner one at home. This pub was big clear windows, flowers on each every table. Little white softer flowers in blue pots, wispier green bits too. I touched gently, Mimo moved it away. Leave it down. It can be difficult to get that child's voice thing right. I remember reading um, Emma Donoghue talking about writing room and how difficult that was and how she was really worried that it was going to become more kish or, you know, too much, really? like too cutesy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she was just like, you know, these are all things that my son says because Jack is based on the five-year-old version of her son. Um, but yeah, she said that she was really worried about getting the tone right with that. And of course, it's pretty much perfect. I'm, I'm surprised that, I'm, I mean, it is perfect. So I'm surprised that, that, that she'd expressed those doubts because it's such, a, a com- such an accomplished a narrative voice, isn't it? It's completely, it's funny. I mean, when I'm with my, I've got a nephew who's about to turn six. Oh, and when, yeah, I, when, I, when I'm with him, I can, you, you, it's funny how when you're, with, when you're with small children, especially when they're at the age where they, where they do converse a lot and he's incredibly talkative, my nephew, 
you do kind of slip into their way of speaking. Um, it's, it's, it's in the same way that, you know, when you're, when you're with certain people, you start to slowly adopt their accents maybe a bit. You know, if you're, when I came from, from Wales to London and my accent very quickly changed once I was surrounded by people from the weren't Welsh. <laughs> and it's a similar thing happens when you're talking to, to, to kids. I find that my, I, I, I tend to start to think and process my speech in, the, in a similar way. But how how to maintain that and how to sustain that in a in a piece of writing is very difficult because it can so easily become mawkish, you know. It's so easy to slip into mawkishness and cutesiness, which is the which is such such a deadly thing. I mean, I I have read books in the past or tried to read books in the past where a character is writing in that voice and it just becomes so icky that I can't, you can't go on because it just it just feels mm. it gets in the way. Even books by very you know accomplished writers, it's one of the most difficult things to do. I think. So after the interval, you then had a previous winner of the Polari Prize um, for was it the Frost Fairs that he won for or Reckless Paper Birds? John McCulloch won the prize in the second year, so twenty twelve with the Frost Fairs, which was his debut poetry collection. And he's since published two more collections. I should have remembered that because we had a joint launch for Spacecraft and uh, Fire Eater's Lover, uh, Gaze the Word, which was which was lovely. And then Reckless Paper Birds. And yeah, I mean, John is one of my favourite contemporary poets. I think he's terrific. He is terrific. And he was, obviously, he's, he's Brighton-based and he was, he was in his home turf, but he was obviously in a new venue. And... I think several people that were there, S.J. Watson was in the audience, um, crime writer, who wrote Before oh, I Go to Sleep. And we were talking afterwards in the bar and with John and he was, uh, Steve was saying how he thought it was John's best performance he'd seen him give. And I, 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 I agree, I thought he was superb that night. He was really, really commanding and powerful. And he has that wonderful, he has this wonderful way of, of making you feel that he's sharing intimacy with you the way that he that he performs. It's not... He's a very he's a very accomplished performer, but it doesn't feel like somebody performing. It feels like someone confiding. I think it comes from his personality. Actually, I think it's just the way he is. I think he's a very warm, engaging person, that, and that comes through when when he performs, when he reads his poetry. You you really feel like someone's sharing something with you. You could feel that in the audience. It felt like a communion. Yeah, which is a real gift. And to kind of lobby for my own part of the industry, I think some of it comes from John's work in performance poetry. Like not many people think of him as a performance poet, but he did kind of start in performance poetry. And performance poetry has a big emphasis. So whether correct or not is another matter for debate on authenticity. So what you're delivering is supposed to be true. Um, and he's sort of taken some of that, not the kind of, you know, trauma porn version, which you, you see in some performance poetry, um, but the same kind of thing as you see in Joel's, like, this happened, this is a commemoration of it, and this is my take on it, and this is my truth, basically. And I think part of that comes from working in that genre, and, you know, he has some poems, like, I was born in an Adidas tracksuit that are more performancey than others, and some that are more soft and delicate and may not go over so well in performance but I think that that authenticity and truth has migrated from the performance work to the page which it doesn't always. No that that that, that makes sense to me I, I I mean I didn't know that but that makes absolute sense to me because Joelle is a similar trajectory I mean she and I've spoken about that um 
you know, that her, her background was very performance um, and that shapes the work. And I get that. It makes, that makes total sense. Tender vessels. I keep trying to slip away through the crowd. But history won't take its mouth off my body. What was exacted on someone else's softness, his cuttable flesh, is always about to happen here. The vague kinship which exists between tender men glowing with thirst starts in awareness of this. How we're unstitched by tongue prints, resurrections. Standing in a street party, one pride, I saw a figure stomp through, fists raised and strike three boys. They dropped to the ground, clutching their heads. I witnessed everything, squeezed a stranger's shoulder. Then fifteen minutes on, my body was distracted utterly by the smell of oranges. The unspeakable scrapes a fingernail across my neck, but I can only concentrate so long before I wind up decanting myself into the nearest fizzing light. Instagram. House music. It's like those inventors who tried to devise a spray on cast for broken bones, created silly string. But there are remedies worse than squirting meters of sticky mayhem across a jubilant face. Outcomes bleaker than attempting, despite the scissors, to inhabit this 21st century skin. I live in a dream of plummeting from the earth's tallest building without ever having felt more beautiful because I'm not the only one falling. I'm in a crowd, a loose democracy of dissent, velocity with its hands all over our bodies but not enough to stop us gossiping and blowing kisses as we speed through the air together, reckless paper birds. They will find us with our beaks wide open. Oh yes, and John, John is great, and I just I love the lobbying that he does for older and mid-career poets, and I love the contributions that he makes by judging large amounts of competitions. And yeah, he's just a mensch, really. He's he's totally great. And yeah, uh, you can tell, I mean, it's only a short snippet of his work on the night that we're going to play on the programme, but I think commanding is, is correct. I've not heard him sound so self-assured before, even in such a short clip of sound. So I hope that it comes across to the audience. No, I, I think it will. I really think it will. I mean, he, 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 didn't, he, didn't, he didn't put a foot wrong that night. He was really, really, really on such great form. He really was. Yes, and you've seen us all multiple times, so you would know. Um, finally... <laughs> That's wonderful. And finally that night, you had a Robert Hamburger, who's written a new book called A Length of Road, I think. Yes. Um, and I've, I, I, did, I, know, I knew his work, but I'd never met him before. I'd never worked with him before. His last poetry collection, Blue Wallpaper, was shortlisted for the Polari Prize last year. And this book is a memoir and it's absolutely beautiful. He read a section about being a young, young man and having been uh, being a schoolboy, basically, and, and having this friend who, who comes out as gay, who came out as gay. 
And at the time, Robert didn't think that he was gay. He got married to a woman. He talked a lot about that related about his marriage and that relationship and coming out later in life and the relationship that he had with this school friend in adult life. And it was very, very, very moving. It's beautiful. Again, he had the I mean it was a very it was very different um to John's performance. It was very gentle and it was it wasn't commanding in that in that way. It was it was it sort of invited you in and you could you, you could you could sense people leaning forward. Um, there was an intimacy about it, um, and it's very confessional because it's obviously a memoir. So you can feel that it's a per- that it's a very personal story, and it felt like he was sharing these intimacies with you. It was very moving. I found it incredibly moving, and he has a he has a lovely presence. He's very gentle. He has a sort of gentle presence about him, Robert, um, and very dignified. He was lovely. I, I really enjoyed his reading. At the sound of music intermission, a smooth man approached near the chocolates. Blotched teenager, I gave him permission to chat about his job, the cruises and sunsets. While the citrus scent he must have sprayed at his wrists and throat flitted between us. I liked how he leant when he laughed, showing his teeth, each note of his voice gentle enough to draw me closer. My mother arrived like a guard dog to shepherd me back in time for Julie, climbing every mountain. I couldn't beg for a moment more. He left me songs in the dark about my favourite things. I understand from the blurb, because his publicist actually contacted me about potentially doing something, which I've been unable to do so far because I am on a deadline, Uh, but she mentioned in the press release something about him being inspired by the poetry of John Clare. Did he really kind of cover any of that? He he, He did talk about that quite a bit didn't John Clare make this journey is that the case yeah so he, he he's he's basically literally literally following in the footsteps of John Clare so that so there's 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 this device in the book that he's actually well not even a device that that but there's this thread in throughout the book that he is literally following in his footsteps on this journey so it's kind of a personal journey being a memoir, but it's also a journey that's about something bigger than just the personal journey. So it kind of broadens out into a wider um, discussion around John Clare and about poetry and about the power of poetry, what it can mean to you as a as a writer and as a as a reader. It's a very it's a, it's a, it's a really good it's a really great book actually. I really love loved that book. I didn't realise until the last show that we recorded, Paul, the Manchester one, that you had also written poetry in your youth. Is any of this tempt you to get back into writing it? <laughs> heavens no <laughs> oh my god it was I, I i discovered some of it recently that i kept some from my early 20s and oh my god it was so bad it was so bad I, do, I don't think the world is 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 needs to hear i don't think not even the world i don't i don't think the polari audience or or any audience needs to have my poetry inflicted upon them i think that would be incredibly cruel 